Good morning. Today's reading will be from Luke 12, verse 13 to 53, on page 737. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll stay, say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan would run, world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house 
had known at what hour that thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for the servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, Master, it's taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Over the last few weeks, we've been following Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem and we've seen that Jesus, at the beginning of the journey, deliberately sets his face towards Jerusalem and he's heading there knowing that when he gets there, he's going to give up his life on the cross so that his followers can be a part of God's kingdom. And this is his final phase of ministry. And in this final phase, Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to follow him, what it looks like for us to be a part of God's kingdom. And so far on this journey to Jerusalem, we've seen that following Jesus comes before comfort, comes before duty, and comes even before family. We've seen that Following Jesus means being a neighbour to anyone who needs us, not just to people who are like us. We've seen that following Jesus means we need to sit at Jesus' feet and receive from him before we stand and serve him. And last week, we saw that the right way to respond to Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, is to fear God, acknowledge Jesus' publicly and listen to the Holy Spirit. Today, on the journey, Jesus warns us of some threats, some dangers. 
that threatened to stop us from following him. And the first warning Jesus says today is that we need to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. Let's see how this unfolds on the journey. Someone in the crowd tells Jesus to tell their brother to divide their inheritance with him. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a reasonable request, doesn't it? He's probably the younger brother, and probably his older brother is refusing to share. And so Jesus' response might sound a bit confusing and a bit harsh. Jesus, first of all, answers him with a question. Look in verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? In one sense, the answer is no one. You know, Jesus hasn't come to sit as a family law court judge. He's come for a much bigger reason. And to come to Jesus thinking that your greatest need is financial is to miss what kind of judge he is. Jesus, he refuses to judge the specific details of this case, but he does make a judgment. Look at verse 15. Jesus says to the crowd, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The root problem, Jesus says, is greed. At least one of the brothers is being greedy. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his followers that anyone who wants to follow him needs to be on their guard against greed. So straight up today, our task has got to be to ask ourselves, are we on our guard against greed? And actually our task is even more challenging than this because Jesus says we need to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. Greed comes in different shapes and sizes and our defences need to be ready for that. If someone was to ask you today over, over morning tea, how, how are you on your guard against greed? Give me your top 10 tips. What would, you, what would you answer? I'm not sure about you, but I think I'd say, gee, it's been a hot week this week, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think I'd answer like that, not just because it's a bit of a strange question, but because I don't think over the years I've given it enough thought. How are we on our guard against greed. Well, let's have a closer look at what Jesus says about greed here to see if we can better guard against it in our lives. In verse 15, Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he adds, life does not consist in the abundance, in an abundance of possessions. Here's our first defense against greed. Don't expect to find life in your possessions. Don't expect to find life, your life, in your possessions. Jesus repeats this idea a little bit later on in verse 23 when he says, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. The problem with greed is that it thinks that true life is found in stuff. On one level, we all know this isn't true. We all know possessions won't satisfy us, money won't make us happy. But it's one thing to know it in your head, isn't it? And it's another thing to really know it in your heart. And unless we're on our our guard, we'll buy the lie that our life 
exists in the things that we own. We need to be guard, guarding ourselves against thinking that happiness and fulfillment and contentment will come with the right house, with the right car, with the new device, with the upgraded kitchen, with the backyard, the new shed and the three chickens. We need to be on our guard because advertising, lifestyle magazines, neighbours, Instagram and TV shows, they, they can all tell us that we should expect to find life in our cooking and in our possessions. We should expect to find our meaning and our identity, our purpose, our escape, our motivation, our style, our happiness. Our first defence against greed that we come across here is don't expect to find your life in your possessions. Don't look for it there. Jesus then tells a story to illustrate someone who gets this wrong. Uh, A rich man who has has a fantastic harvest and he has so much grain that he's got nowhere to put it. So what does he do? He tears down his sheds and he builds bigger sheds. And he says to himself, and he says he's going to go on saying to himself in verse 19, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, of you, many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. He thinks this is it. He thinks he's found life. He thinks life is all about taking it easy, eating, drinking and being happy. He seems to be ignoring the rest of this well-known proverb, well-known even back then, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. And this is exactly what happens. And so his, his selfish attempt to find life in his abundance is proved for what it is, literally a dead end. And instead of finding life, his life is demanded of him. But where exactly does he go wrong? See, it's not simply that he's rich that's the problem. It's not even that he's a hoarder, in case you're wanting to apply this to your spouse in the car on the way home. It's not even that he wants to have security and, and, and wants to enjoy life. We see the heart of his problem in verse 21. Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Where did he go wrong? He hasn't been rich toward God. He's tried to be rich completely without reference to God. He's seeking life outside God. As one commentator writes, there are many forms of pride, but the worst of them is to think that one has no need of God. Here's our second defence against greed. Be rich toward God. But what does this mean? Our minds can um, very easily jump to thinking that this means that we've got to give to God so that we don't cop it like the rich person in this story. But that's not being rich toward God, is it? That's making a, a calculated business decision that it's worth paying a tax to God to buy His protection kind of like treating God like he's the mafia or something. Being rich toward God is, a, is about considering true riches to be found in him. 
so that the way we use earthly riches reflects that we think that they're completely inferior compared to Him. If I'm rich towards God, then it's no worry for me to part with earthly treasures if it's for Him. See, the reality is that we'll always love, always serve and always obey something. It'll either be God that we love, that we obey and that we serve, or it'll be something else. And the very common God alternatives throughout human history are money and possessions. Now, I'm wondering if at this moment, um, if we're finding this another moment where we're finding Jesus uncomfortable. And if we're not terribly uncomfortable by the end of our time together today, I think something's gone wrong, actually. I mean, we are those who have more possessions than ever. We've got an abundance like never before in the history of the world. We really are those who can eat, drink and be merry. We can take life easy and actually we think it's our God-given right to do so, don't we? Our storehouses are huge. We delight in our things, our houses, our furniture, our vehicles, our hobbies. If ever followers of Jesus needed to be on their guard against greed, surely it would be us in our time. In this series, The Avant-Garde Christ, Jesus can feel so radical and, and so unorthodox and make us feel so uncomfortable that we could be tempted to think that He's challenging us just for the sake of it. You know, we could be tempted to think that He burdens us. He burdens us. That what He demands from us, is, it's just too much. But if that's what we're hearing, we're missing the truth. Jesus is not confronting us just for the sake of it. He's confronting us for our own sake. He rages against the evil that we've enslaved ourselves to. He rages against the evil leaders who perpetuate that slavery. He rages against the devil himself. Jesus confronts what we hold sacred because what we hold sacred is actually doing us harm. It strikes me that Jesus is not like what my sister and I were like to my uncle when we were little, when we were growing up. We were really irritating kids. And um, we had this wild uncle who about every five years he'd drop in, usually because his motorbike had broken down along his way somewhere and he couldn't afford to fix it. So he'd stay with us for a few months too many. And being the, he's my mum's youngest brother, and being the um, delightful nephew and niece that we were, we'd throw out his cigarettes because they were bad for him. At least that's what we told ourselves. And the kind of reaction that we'd get was terrifying and entertaining. <laughs> and that was our main reason for doing it. It was thrilling. Our poor uncle had no money. And um, he had no money to buy cigarettes to begin with. And so when we threw out his sacred cigarettes just for fun, he'd go absolutely ballistic. Jesus isn't like me and my sister, it might surprise you to find out. He's not irritating just for the sake of it. When Jesus is challenging the things that we hold sacred, he's doing it for our own good. He's doing it because he wants us to know where life really lies. When we stop seeking life in stuff, 
and find it in the one place where it can be found, in God. It's not a burden, it's liberating, it's comforting, it's life-giving. Well, up until this point, Jesus has been talking to the crowds, but now he turns his attention to his followers. And in this next, next section, he tells them why they've chosen true riches by choosing God, why they've made the right choice. He says in verse 22, to start with, do not worry about your life. He tells them that God will worry about it for them. God will make sure they're fed. God will make sure they're clothed. And here's a third defense against greed for us. Remember, God is worth trusting. In verse 24, God even cares for the birds, the animals. And God cares for us. We're worth much more than the birds. And God's worth trusting because we're not worth trusting. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And Jesus says that God is worth trusting because he's rich towards us. Jesus tells his disciples not to set their hearts on what they can eat and drink because in verse 30, your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Here we see a fourth defence against greed. Seek God's kingdom instead. When we seek God's kingdom, He gives it to us. He's pleased to give it to us. And in giving us His kingdom, He gives us everything else that we need. And then look at what this means we can do in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And here is the final and the most challenging defence against greed. Give generously, freely and sacrificially to those in need. Why? Verse 34 For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this isn't isn't about earning a place in God's kingdom. Jesus has just said we've already been given a place in God's kingdom. The only question is, will we continue to treasure God's kingdom? Will we actually desire to be a part of it? When we give away earthly riches because we treasure heaven we're actually breaking the hold that earthly treasure has on us and we guard our hearts for God's kingdom. If we're truly treasuring God's kingdom to come, if that's where we're we're invested, then we'll be safe from greed. Now, it strikes me, as I was preparing the sermon this week, again and again, that, that it isn't actually particularly hard to understand what Jesus is saying here, is it? It's easy. But what is hard is to actually do what he's saying. 
How are we going at guarding against all kinds of greed? How are we going at at not expecting to find life in our possessions? How are we going at being rich towards God? How are we going at remembering God's worth trusting? How are we going at seeking His kingdom instead? And how are we going at giving generously, freely and sacrificially to those in need? Don't walk away today not listening to Jesus. As we saw last week, we need to be those who hear God's word and obey it. Is Jesus challenging you to go home and to strengthen your defences against greed? I've certainly felt challenged this week. Jesus then goes on to tell us to be on our guard against our focus drifting from him. Look at verse 35. He says, Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. See, here it's not just greed that threatens to pull us away from God's kingdom, it's any number of things that could take our focus off him. Maybe it's career, a relationship, someone who's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, who's not interested in God, perhaps, family, pleasure, hobbies, comfort, anything that gets in the way of us living ready for Jesus' return. I remember babysitting long into the night for my next-door neighbour. I always wanted to be awake when they came home, because otherwise, no matter what I said, they'd, they'd leave me sleeping there till some terrible hour in the morning when I'd wake up confused and and kind of not sure what was going on, wondering if they were back or not and they'd get a lift so I couldn't just go and see if their car was there or not, so I'd have this awkward situation where I'd have to sneak over to their bedroom, peer in and go, yes, they're there and then stumble back to next door. But every single time, even though I had lots of motivation to stay awake, I found it so hard just drifting off to sleep, just waiting for them. Jesus tells us here that we shouldn't expect it to be easy to wait for Him. We shouldn't expect it to be easy to stay ready for His return. It's like staying awake through the night, He says. If we're being honest, it's actually very easy to let our focus drift from living for Jesus and His kingdom. Now again, Jesus is not saying this to burden us. Living for Him and being ready for God's kingdom is actually good for us now and especially it's good for us in the future. Look at verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Jesus himself returns to serve us. It's for our own good that we live for Him now. It's for our own good that we don't let our focus drift from Him. How are you going at keeping your focus on Jesus, on His return? We find ourselves not ready for Jesus' return if we find ourselves no longer trusting in Him, no longer longing for Him to come back, no longer living for Him. Generally, 
this happens bit by bit, you know, small step by small step. I mean, again, think about babysitting. What happens? You're at the table working, you stop doing work, you go and sit on the couch, you turn on the TV, you slouch, you lie down for a bit, you just sort of close your eyes to rest them, and then you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning cranky and confused. How we lose our focus on Jesus, it can be kind of similar to that, you know, step by step, little bit by little bit. I start moving away from being engaged in actively waiting for Jesus. I move away from others who would help me stay alert and longing for his return. I make small compromises. I know this is not what Jesus wants, but it's what I need right now. And I think I deserve a bit of a reward a little bit of a break and then after many steps one day I find myself looking in the mirror thinking oh well I never believed it anyway if you want to stay ready engage your heart and mind for Jesus recognize the distractions call them for what they are whether it's a relationship whether it's pleasure whether it's comfort don't compromise And if you do, re-engage your heart and mind for Jesus and expect it to be tedious. That's why God gives us each other, to help us stay awake together. Now at this point, Peter pipes up, as he often does, and he asks Jesus if this warning is just for the leaders or if it's for everyone. And Jesus answers by saying, by giving a special warning to us leaders. And he says, we have the potential for a unique kind of distraction. We have the danger of our focus drifting from waiting for Jesus to using our position to serve ourselves. Instead of feeding Jesus' people with his word, his leaders can actually exploit them and abuse them. I remember talking to someone, asking them why they went to the church that they went to when their minister doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't realise this and they said, well, why on earth would they want to be a minister then? Good question. But it happens way too often. Jesus says a leader's job is to faithfully feed his people, which is what they do when they bring God's word to them, whether when they want to hear it and when they don't. But if instead I think what I'd rather do is just bring my word teach what I like, do what I like, exploit people for my own gain, then look at what Jesus has to say to me in verse 46. Jesus says the master will return and to that servant he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. If you're also a leader, community group leader or a fixed leader or a jam leader, You should hear this, keeping our focus on Jesus means faithfully serving his people by bringing God's word to them and by not exploiting them. Finally, Jesus says we need to be on our guard against missing our personal need to repent. We didn't have this bit read in our reading, uh, but we're going to cover it today anyway. So Jesus says to the crowds that they're quite good at reading the weather and they're actually quite good at judging 
the outcome of legal conflicts as well. This is in chapter 13. But what they can't seem to figure out, just before chapter 13 actually, what they can't seem to figure out is that they themselves need to repent and be reconciled to God. Jesus is there among them, the King of the Kingdom. And they're failing to read the clear signs of the times. In verse 56, Jesus says, Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Jesus says, even if they just consider the events of the world around them, it should be obvious that things aren't right, that, that things are out of line and that they need to turn back to their Creator. The oppression of an evil ruler like Pilate killing people. The awful events of a horrible accident, a tower collapsing and killing people. These aren't signs, Jesus says, that one individual needs to repent. These are signs that every individual needs to repent. These are signs that this world is under an evil rule and needs to turn and seek a different kingdom. But the people then were poor at reading the signs. And it strikes me, are we any better today? I mean, when we see the awful oppression of an evil ruler or the awful events of a horrible accident, we too today can fail to read the science. Like you see many people today blame God for the events, blame Him as being powerless or blame Him as being unfaithful or they misread the signs as His non-existence. What we often fail to see is what they failed to see back then, that, that the world is the way it is because of us. All of us have played our part in the mess of this world. It's not what it's supposed to be and we're right for feeling that. And the solution doesn't lie within, the, promise, the problem lies within. And so when we see the mess in this world, it should drive us to repent and look to God to fix this world. I think I'd, I told you a little while ago about when I had to see a doctor, a specialist, and um, he was stuck on the fact that I had been a pharmacist and I'd become a minister. He just couldn't get past it. And he said, but what about the suffering in the world? What about Syria? What about innocent children dying there? He even said, what about the fact that your mum died when you were 20, which he'd got from my medical history? And he said to me, I don't have the faith to believe in God. I felt so sorry for him. I mean, he was correctly reading, correctly reacting against the mess of this world. That bit he was reading correctly, but what he was misreading was what it meant. And I said to him, I don't have the faith to be an atheist because those things worry you and so they should. But if there's no God, then there's no possible reason to consider those things evil. I mean, if there's no God, why should you care about children dying in Syria, I said to him. Without God, it's not evil, it just is. Don't buy the lie that sickness and death is just a natural part of this life. Sickness and death is an evil that doesn't belong. It's right that we find it so hard to accept. We're right to find death and suffering so awful and so out of place in this world. 
And if we're reading the signs right, it should drive us back to God to admit the problem is within us too and to seek the solution in God's kingdom. Read the times. Lift your eyes. Religion won't go away. There are more people entering the kingdom of God today than ever before. Do you know that the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran? Followed closely by China. There's more oppression, more opposition to the things of God than ever. And yet more people than ever consider God's kingdom worth dying for. Don't miss the signs. Jesus is establishing his kingdom. Turn back to God if you haven't already. Well, we began with a family divided by money. Asking Jesus to to divide it up for them. But Jesus has a very different idea about what's important. Jesus' focus is on God's kingdom. And he considers God's kingdom so worthwhile that he goes to Jerusalem to die to bring it about. And for God's kingdom, Jesus is even prepared to divide up families. Look back at chapter 12, verse 51. Jesus says, Do you think I've come to bring peace to earth, on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. So valuable is God's kingdom. So completely necessary is it that we enter it, that Jesus is prepared to set the world on fire for our own good. And he calls us to guard ourselves so that we share his same passion, that we share his same focus and his same urgency for God's kingdom. Let's pray and ask for God's help in that. Heavenly Father, help us to guard ourselves for you alone. Lord, may our focus be on Jesus, his return and the kingdom that he's bringing. Help us to see that what you're calling calling us to really is for our own good that your kingdom really is worth it. That, Lord, if we don't love you and obey you and serve you, we will love, obey and serve terrible masters that will chew us up and spit us out. Lord, guard us against greed. Help us to be honest with ourselves and to take the steps to strengthen our defences. Lord, guard us against anything that would distract us from living for Jesus whether it's a relationship, whether it's our work, whether it's an addiction, whatever it is, Lord. Help us to look and be ready for Jesus' return, trusting in Him all our days. And Lord, guard us from thinking that we don't need to turn to You, that we don't need to actually completely turn away from living for ourselves and completely turn to Jesus. Lord, help us to see our own personal need to repent. And Lord, cause us to do it. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus doesn't hold back in speaking the hard word. 
that out of love, he tells us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Lord, please help us to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.